Welcome to From What If to What Next. I'm your host and imagineer, Rob Hopkins. Patricia McKillip once wrote that imagination is the golden-eyed monster that never sleeps. It must be fed. It cannot be ignored. So welcome to this place in your life where your imagination is not ignored. Indeed, it is pampered, nurtured, welcomed and loved. This is that iridescent corner of the world where your precious, precious imagination is treasured and fed its most delicious favourite foods. Here, nothing is impossible and we love big thinking. And before we proceed, I should just mention that this podcast is able to flourish and to sound as amazing as it does because of those wonderful folks who subscribe at patreon.com slash from what if to what next. In exchange, they get an extra podcast called the Ministry of Imagination and other bits too, as well as receiving these main episodes the day they're released. They'd love you to join them and would welcome you with open arms, fireworks, cake and dancing. Today's episode of From What If To What Next is about care. Care has been very much on our minds of recent. Covid has highlighted how vitally important care is and yet how undervalued it is. It's so often seen as being the domain of women and around the world it is often either underpaid or unpaid work. As the populations of the global north live longer and longer and as young people are unable to afford often to leave home, it tends to often fall to women to care for both the younger and the older generation simultaneously, what is sometimes called the sandwich generation. It's still the case that in many cultures, such as Asian cultures, women are shamed if they don't step in and take care of their older relatives. At the same time, in order for some wealthier families to work, they need to hire nannies and au pairs to care for their children. And this is often a grey, a kind of grey market territory with little worker protection, little regulation and very little formal training. People often talk about their nannies as being part of the family, which further blurs the edge between employment and worker protection. In the worst cases, people who do this kind of work are very vulnerable to employers not paying them or even being enslaved or abused. And sometimes they have to leave their own children behind in order to earn money caring for someone else's children. And many people are happy to stand on their doorsteps and clap for those who provide the care in our society during COVID, but not to really value care, not to campaign for it to be truly valued. Arundhati Roy has said that COVID has provided the equivalent of an MRI scan for our societies, revealing the inequalities and lack of care for those who are providing the care. These days of COVID have the potential to be a real watershed moment. So our question, therefore, today is, what if care work was valued? Joining me today to explore this are two wonderful guests. Kavita Ramdas is a recognised global advocate for intersectional gender equality and justice. She currently serves as the director of the Women's Rights Programme at the Open Society Foundations. She previously served as a strategy advisor for Madre and founded KNR Sisters, an independent consulting venture. From 1996 to 2010, she led the Global Fund for Women as president and CEO to grow into the largest public foundation for women women's rights in the world. From 2012 to 2016, she led the Ford Foundation's operations in South Asia and was senior advisor to Darren Walker, the foundation's president. She founded SEERS, Social Entrepreneurs in Residence program at Stanford University and is a member of Aspen Institute's Henry Crown Fellows program. Currently, she serves on a few select non-profit advisory boards, the Board of Trustees of the Rockefeller Brothers Fund and the Board of Directors of Grist, 
publicly supported journalism non-profit focused on climate justice, which I personally love. And I, Jen Poo, is the award-winning organiser, author and leading voice in the women's movement. She's executive director of the National Domestic Workers Alliance, director of Caring Across Generations, co-founder of Supermajority, co-host of Sunstorm podcast and a trustee of the Ford Foundation. iGen is nationally recognised expert on elder and family care, the future of work and what's at stake for women of colour. She's the author of the celebrated book, The Age of Dignity, Preparing for the Elder Boom in a Changing America. Wow, thank you both so, so much for joining me here today. Thanks for having us. We're delighted to be here. Nice to be with you, Rob. Great. So I'd like to start by asking you both to uh, join me and step into my time machine, lovingly built during lockdown from some plans I found in a strange old box in my garage. So I'd like to invite you both to close your eyes, if I may, and to imagine that you're travelling forwards through time, through each year as we head towards 2030. I'd like you to imagine that the time you travelled through was a time we now look back to as having been a revolution of the imagination, a time of incredible possibility and opportunity and of rapid, unprecedented, cascading change. And the 2030 that you emerge into is not paradise, but it's the result of everything that could possibly have been done during that time being done. It's a profound shift, transformation. It's now a low-carbon, fairer, just, delightful, caring, kind world. It's a world in which care is profoundly valued. The work you were doing back in 2021 bore fruit. Congratulations. So I wonder if you might just take us for a walk around that world. What does it smell like, taste like, sound like, feel like? How can you capture that future for us? Ijen? I love this, this time machine that you've built, Rob. Thank you. <laughs> I want to stay <laughs> in this place. Um, it is a world where communities are living intergenerationally and we are connected um, in very profound ways across generations and we're all consciously caregiving in different ways and accounting for the fact that we are all caring for people that we love and supported to do that um, in the form of time off from work that's paid, fully compensated in the form of support from professional care workers who themselves are earning fair wages, family sustaining wages, where they're able to fully take care of themselves and their own families. And there is an integration between all of us who need care and those who provide it, and a sense of mutual support, respect, and valuing of our roles in sustaining the infrastructure of the economy and making everything else in society possible. And children aspire to be care workers. Men take pride in their role as caregivers and our elders as they age can do so knowing that they will have the support that they need to live full active dignified lives even as they become more frail and develop different disabilities and we will have a whole population of people with disabilities 
who can fully participate in society. They can work, they can play, they can love, and they are just a part of our communities. And we don't miss anyone's unique gifts that they bring to our world. And all of the women who were family caregivers in the before time are able to have real choices between pursuing a profession, pursuing all kinds of creative, innovative goals in their lives, uh, ways that they want to contribute, knowing that caregiving will be fully supported. Mm, beautiful. Thank you. Kavita? Sorry, you know, in this wonderful world, first of all, we don't know how to use um, technology in a way that actually makes sure we're not on mute when we don't want to be. But I, I can just see I'm walking around this wonderful world and I have recognized that there's something so different about it. And the first thing that I'm noticing is that in this world, we've somehow placed the values of interdependence mutual respect, tolerance, but most importantly, a sense of reciprocity at the heart of its organizational systems. It's not a world where there isn't conflict, but it seems to be a world where conflict is addressed and resolved by listening, learning, consultation, and conversation, rather than res resorting to brute force and violence. It's a world where this notion of reciprocity and caring of, for people and planet are prized far above notions of personal profit and power. The reason I know that is because I heard just yesterday as I was walking around with iGen and we were listening to people reading the newspapers that just yesterday, the world's most powerful nations came together and made an agreement to destroy their stockpiles of weapons because they realized that our joint survival requires investments into new ways of living with climate change and global warming. Um, I also heard that there was a um, convening of religious leaders to affirm that it is love and respect for all human beings and our mother earth, regardless of where those human beings worship or what or whom they called God, that should be the first and primary commitment of all religions. I've also been listening to people speaking to each other that the way in which we got here was because people came together and refused to accept that a few men should control the resources of the planet financially and that only a few numbers of men should control the powerful systems of religion, politics, and cultures inside and across most nations, while millions of other people struggle to simply survive. I can tell already that this is a world that will be more peaceful, less militarist, and far more equitable. In it, as Aijan said, we're already noticing elder people and younger people not living separate from each other, but living in community with each other, that there is a space for people to be fully themselves from the moment of their birth to the end of their lives. We notice that the caring and raising of children occupies a place of joy and honor in this society, and people of all genders are well supported by society and well rewarded both financially, but also with social recognition and respect when they choose to take on those responsibilities. And I think similarly, there's freedom for all beings, regardless of whether we choose to bear or not raise children, regardless of our sex identities at birth, 
um, reproduction, whether limited to women as currently the case by biology or transformed by whatever new technologies are seen as something that is both a personal choice and decision, but is also a commitment that society makes to its own future as a species. And I really am so excited by what I see, the ways in which sexuality in all its myriad forms are celebrated in this new 2030 world, in which cultures of consensual pleasure are freeing human bodies of the crippling expectations that are related to the gendered roles that Aijan and I knew back in 2021. It's such an exciting moment, Rob. Wow, thank you both so much. That was beautiful. So let's start with a question for those who might be new to thinking about all of this. What do we mean by care work? Who does it? Why is it so undervalued? And why is it more of a visible issue now than it might have been a couple of years ago? Kavita. Well, the interesting thing is that there has never been a society on the planet ever in existence that didn't begin with the concept of caring and reciprocity. We simply wouldn't have survived as a species to this point without that. Not a single one of us who comes to this earth is able to survive without the care that we first get from those who take care of us, whether immediately our biological parents or by those who take care of us regardless of their biological relationship to us. And there is a sense in which that caring is so fundamental. And what is really deeply saddening for people like Aijen and myself, and indeed, I think any of us who care about the future of the planet, is that we all know how essential that is. And yet, we have come to a place in our societies in the world where we take that um, caring for granted, where that caring is simply not valued, it's not even recognized. The women of Spain many years ago, already back in 2008, when I was at the Global Fund for Women, were beginning to try and bring attention to that invisibilized work by holding a series of women's strikes on uh, March 8th, which is International Women's Day. And they had a wonderful they had a wonderful slogan for that strike. It was called Cuando las mujeres paran, todo se para. When women stop, the world stops. And the reason that they wanted to bring attention to the value of this invisibilized work that primarily women and girls on the planet were carrying out was that this work of care is nowhere showing up in the GDP calculations of capitalist economies. And since capitalism has now been declared the primary way in which the world organizes all our economies and global capitalism has essentially dominated the earth as we know it, um, nowhere in that recognition is there accounting for care. Much as in the same way, nowhere in that global system has there been an accounting for carbon or an accounting for the environmental disasters and pollution. So essentially, we've been doing sort of this free ride on care and a free ride on the environmental cost of what we have been considering to be economics. And I think the caring work is the work that we all do for each other. That is labor that is often not recognized. And when it is recognized, and I'll let Aijan speak to that more, it is so poorly rewarded. It is so miserably compensated or, or, or not compensated that you have a situation in which after the pandemic, for the first time in ages, feminist economists who've been talking about this for decades were finally acknowledged for the significance of what it means to actually fight for a care economy 
in our globe as a standard practice and not just sort of diminishing this to oh, some little sector called the care sector. Mm. Ajahn? Yeah, I'll just build off of that by saying that the way we define the care economy is that part of our economy, which as Kavita said so beautifully, has been invisibilized and taken for granted, but is the part that is about the labor and the energy that allows us to take care of our children, to ensure that people with disabilities are able to have the support and care that they need and that cares for our aging loved ones, loved ones with chronic illnesses. And that work can happen in the home or it can happen in institutions, childcare centers, nursing homes, assisted living facilities. And that work can be done by family members. And it's also done by sometimes friends, right? But it can be done by family as unpaid caregivers or it can be done by professional care workers. And right now, professional care workers are among the least valued uh, and most insecure workers in our entire economy. They're also the fastest growing segments of our workforce because these are also jobs that cannot be outsourced and are not gonna be automated at least anytime soon right there's no algorithm yet for empathy and there is a huge and growing aging population rob as you named at the beginning of the of the conversation where every eight seconds in the united states someone turns 65 and people are living longer than ever before we've essentially added an entire generation onto our lifespan without any infrastructure or policy change or even culture change to adapt to that extended lifespan just means we need more care than we've ever needed before as a society at a time when we have less of it because all the adults in the household have to work out of necessity outside of the household and so we just it's just been revealed how little care how much care is needed in order for society to function and how little infrastructure is in place to support the care that's needed and how vulnerable and insecure we've made the care workforce that is in place and how isolated family caregivers are who are struggling to make it all work. So what would it look like if society actually valued this work. I mean, there are, there are some different approaches people put forward. Some people say we need a universal basic income or something similar that would free people up to have more time to care for their elders and children. And for others, it's a vision where, where care work is respected, protected and properly compensated. Where, where do you both come from in terms of what it would actually look like if society valued uh, this work? Ijen. I think we would have universal access to the care that we need across the lifespan. So universally affordable and accessible quality childcare, the ability to take time off from work to take care of our loved ones uh, without losing pay or our jobs uh, through a paid family medical leave program. And we would have universal access to long-term care, which includes support for people with disabilities and older adults. Um, 
And, and I think that um, every caregiver would have the ability, whether they're a family member, to have respite care, or if they're a professional care worker, to be able to earn a living wage with benefits, real economic security and mobility for themselves and their families, and also have access to care themselves. So the universality of the ability to have access to quality care and the ability to know that within that, the workforce is really well supported um, to be able to play the pivotal role that they play in our lives and in the economy is, is really how I think about it. Thank you. Kavita? I think I would add a few things that are maybe taking it outside of the concept of a very highly developed economy like the United States and just remind everybody that from the perspective of most of the world, which doesn't live with the same sets of resources as the United States, care is the work that is disproportionately provide care of both people and planet, by the way. And I think this is very important because I think we often think about care as only being about people. But when you think that women and girls across the globe provide disproportionately the bulk of the labor that is both in agriculture and in terms of bringing fuel and um, drinking water into families, they are also the ones who care for the world's forests. They are also the ones who care for the world's herbs and and woodlands. They are also the ones who care for for the world's water systems. So there is a great amount of unpaid caring work that is being shouldered. Uh, And it isn't only shouldered by women and girls, but women and girls do a very large percentage of the world's caring work. So I think that's important to remember because as we think about what would be required, I think there needs to be a fundamental shift away from the very extractive approach to the management of the earth's resources, which the current capitalist system, which is disproportionately dependent on high levels of consumption in the global north. That's essentially what fuels global capitalist economies, is very, very high levels of consumption. You're always being told, buy more, buy more, buy more, buy more. And in fact, it's the exact opposite of what the earth needs. The earth does not need us to be consuming more. Already, an average American consumes 40 times that of an average Bangladeshi or an average Indian or an average Kenyan. So having a world in which the entire, and for the last 70 years, as someone who grew up in a quote-unquote developing country, we were supposed to be developing towards the future that was supposed to be this so-called developed global north. Well, that's just actually garbage because that future was premised on slavery, was premised on colonialism, was premised on massive extraction of wealth from the developing world, which was controlled by military presence And there is a profound way in which I think we are now all waking up and realizing that this appetite for consumption that we were told was part of what it would mean to make ourselves developed is just absolutely not sustainable. And now all of a sudden, the global north is waking up and saying, oh, I say India, I say China, you need to do something about your carbon emissions. And of course, the rest of the world is saying, Oh, now you've decided after 500 years of you having everything in the world, now you've decided it's our turn to cut back on carbon emissions. So I think there's a way in which we think care has to do with this narrow set of issues that is about 
you know, the care economy, quote unquote, who is taking care of old people, who is taking care of children, who is taking care of sick people. But in fact, the caring goes much beyond that. And that is the part that I think feminist economists are fighting so hard for us to understand, is that if you don't understand that care is central to the restructuring of our economies per se, simply doing what Aijan correctly is fighting for in the context of the US, which is to make sure that care workers are treated with dignity, are paid well, and do have a chance to actually have decent and livable wages is not going to be sufficient because in the rest of the world, this kind of Godzilla of American style gross capitalism is fueling everything. And so there needs to be a profound rethinking because part of the reason our societies are now exporting care, you know, so in the in the years of colonialism, they were basically extracting minerals and now they're extracting care from our society. So why do you have so many immigrants from Guatemala and El Salvador coming as maids and nannies and sex workers to the United States? Why do you have people fleeing Africa and showing up on the shores of Greece and, and Spain? This is not unrelated to the questions of care that we're putting at, at your doorstep. And I think Europe and the Western world has to actually really take a good hard look at its ways of living and consuming and realize that these things are not unrelated. You will always have poor people flocking to the West in the ways that they are flocking to the West because you've destroyed our economies, you've destroyed our cultures, you've destroyed our agricultural systems. And now when we show up looking for jobs, you know, by crossing the Rio Grande into the United States or by crossing the Mediterranean into Europe, it is high time that the global north understood that the crisis of care is fundamental to the crisis that capitalism is facing in the world today. And that's what I think really needs to change. Thank you. Thank you. What would need to be put in place, whether in terms of legislation or attitude shifts, culture change, immigration reform, whatever, that would that would assist with the kind of shift that you're talking about there, Kavita? A lot of things have to change, Rob. I mean, I work for a place right now that talks about open societies, and yet the world is so terrified to actually talk straight about what it would mean to live in a world that really transcends boundaries. We are so stuck in this narrow nationalist conception of being first, you know, and Americans, even the best American presidents still talk about what it means to be first. I would just like to remind people that we live on a globe and the globe is a circle. And if you stood in a circle, you would realize there are no firsts and no seconds. And if COVID taught us anything and is still teaching us, if you don't give vaccines to the rest of the world, there will be more Delta variants and it will come and get you. No matter how high a wall you build, no matter how many restrictions you put on immigration into your country, no matter how many migrants you don't want to accept or, or you want to treat like the last to be attended to. There was a movie made some years ago, Rob, that was called A Day Without a Mexican. I don't know, Aijan, if you remember this. And it talked about the Californian economy, which is the seventh largest economy in the world and is almost entirely dependent on the migrant labor that comes over every year. And the migrant labor that the United States is so concerned about building a wall to keep out. 
So I think what really does need to change is one, I think nations have to come together and say this outdated notion that we've been using to kind of address our issues, you know, the only place where you maybe could still have nationalism should be at the Olympics. And even there, I think it's overrated. But actually, I think we need to be seriously talking about the fact that if the primary challenges that face us, whether those are climate change or pandemics, are challenges that know no borders, then why the hell are we organizing everything else around borders? And it's interesting because the only place that we grant exemption to these national borders is to capitalists themselves. So Elon Musk can do his, you know, he can outsource and have, you know, his labor be cheaper in China or so capital is not restricted by borders, but labor is restricted by borders. So this is, again, I think, a very arbitrary way in which we've decided what can be free and what cannot be free. And I agree with Igen. I think we need to do a lot more labor union organizing. And I think we need to do that globally and transnationally because it isn't enough just for us to organize inside national boundaries because capitalists are super smart and they will send that care out somewhere else. They will figure out a way in which if it's not, you know, efficient enough to get you know, low-income care, they will get a certain number of nurses or a certain number of healthcare workers or a certain number of whatever it is to come in and take care of the, the sick and the unwell in their own countries to the extent that it's feasible. So yes, I think massive levels of labor union organizing, but transnationally are important. And I think the struggle for feminist movements, we have to support more feminist thinking and we need more women leadership across countries there there had there is a huge paucity there is a dominant male framework for analysis that is based on patriarchy and capitalism is based on patriarchy it it assumes that the way in which we make decisions has to be by domination and in fact i think what we're lacking is imagination so i hope i hope your podcast helps remind us of what it is we need <laughs> Me too. Thank you. And yeah, I, Jen, we, we were talking before uh, about Joe Biden's infrastructure plan. And we, we, we had a previous episode where we looked at this concept of imagination infrastructure, that we need to build an imagination infrastructure. What, what would it look like to build a care infrastructure? Mm -hmm. Well, I love this question because um, this is what I've spent the last 10 years thinking about. Um, <laughs> Good. <laughs> Imagine like an electrical grid or, you know, the waterways that bring clean water to every home in the country, that we would have systems, programs, and a strong workforce that um, could bring real care options into every home and community in the country. And I think that's absolutely possible and within reach and the president president biden and vice president harris's uh, build back better agenda includes actually a historic investment in the care economy that is for the first time catalyzing a conversation among policymakers about whether care should be treated as infrastructure <laughs> I have been talking about it as infrastructure for a long time, because if you think about the definition of infrastructure, which enables society to function, right, including the economy, 
so we think about it as roads and bridges, but we actually, some people need a bridge to get to work and other people need childcare to get to work <laughs> and other people need elder care to get to work. And what could really be more fundamental than care and access to quality care for the people that we love? And if you think about it, even the men who are rebuilding our bridges and tunnels need care um, before they can go to work. So. So we have are having this conversation and Congress is on the precipice of making uh, hundreds of billions of dollars, maybe upwards of a trillion, knock on wood, in the accessibility and affordability of quality childcare, universal access to pre-K, long-term care, expanding access to home and community care for people with disabilities and older people who want to age and live at home, and for universal paid family and medical leave so that people can take up to 12 weeks off from work. Um, and these investments are proven. We have the data that shows that they this is the way that we enable labor force participation for especially for women, but really for everyone. In the pandemic, almost 5 million women were forced out of the workforce because of lack of access to caregiving. Um, so if we really want the country to be able to get back to work and the economy to start functioning again, this is a really profound investment to be making not to mention all the other investments in quality of life and dignity for people who rely on these services and for the workers. These investments for the first time make these jobs living wage jobs with a path to a union, which is really just such a game changer. Um, forever, the average wage of a home care worker in the United States right now is $17,000 a year. And these are overwhelmingly women and majority women of color. In fact, it's the sector with the largest concentration of black women working of any part of our economy. So transforming these jobs into living wage jobs is uh, probably the single biggest jobs investment for women and women of color in history. And I guess I would add a, a global perspective to that, Rob, which is that, again, um, this is the wealthiest country in the world. And this is a country that spends more on its military combined than the next 20 countries put together. So if it spent a fraction of what it spends on the Pentagon and the military, which as we have seen has had such a great success that they're now pulling out of Afghanistan after 30 years, abandoning women in Afghanistan to the same fate that they were found in 30 years ago, it would be remarkable if the United States would do what it's trying to do for itself for the rest of the world, because many other parts of the world simply don't have the kind of resources of the United States. And I would say what is so powerful about what the Biden administration is signaling by this investment that Aijan just described is that it gives the rest of the world the potential to be able to sit up and say, wow, the US is making that kind of an investment in care and it's seeing care as an infrastructure issue. Wow, maybe that's a 
gives us some room to be able to have that same conversation. And it would be even more amazing if, for example, we would stop selling weapons to everybody else in the world and start telling countries like India and Pakistan, which have, you know, spent far more on nuclear weapons and their militaries than they ever have on the infrastructure of care in their societies, and to begin to kind of shift where we put priorities for so-called developing countries. But even in so-called developed countries, South Korea is a place where we have been doing a lot of work on the care economy in our program at the Women's Rights Program. My colleague Marina Durano is a feminist economist who noticed almost 10 years ago that there has been a precipitous drop in the birth rate in South Korea. Well, when you start doing more work and looking into that more deeply, it's because South Korean women simply could not manage the dual burden that they were facing of both childcare, working outside the home, and elder care in their own families. This has in turn led to a situation where Korean men are literally trafficking in women. You can purchase a bride from Vietnam or from Nepal or from Indonesia for $20,000 who comes in to basically provide care for an elder in your family as your wife. This is the kind of situation that we are finding ourselves in. And for the first time under this Korean president, um, we have done a time series survey of care in the Korean economy, funded jointly by the Hewlett Foundation and by the Open Society Foundation, which is looking at the profound repercussions of how care is at the cost of human lives and primarily the lives of Korean women and girls, and how that is limiting the choices that they have, even as an OECD country. They have one of the lowest rates of female participation not because Korean women don't want to work, not because Korean women don't want to have kids, but because Korean women literally cannot carry the care burden anymore for their societies. So I think South Korea and Argentina are two countries that are beginning to look very closely at, is there an opportunity here for us to build a care infrastructure into our macroeconomic modeling so that we can really start thinking about how to invest in care because it's good for our economy, because it will be good for all of our people, because it makes sense for all of our um, structures. And in Argentina, I would just like to say for the first time ever, because of the feminist movements called Ni Una Menos, we have feminist economists in positions of power. There is a uh, an entire title, Mercedes de Alessandro, leads an, an institute at the Ministry of Finance called the Gender and Equity Directorate. I mean, it's unheard of. So, and, and Argentina also has one of the largest unions in the world of domestic workers. So these are, these are some examples of hope that I think the example of the United States and others like these could have for the rest of the world. But I don't think we can only fight on one front. We can't, again, we would not have learned the lessons of this pandemic if we just try to fight for improvements in the United States and in the developed world, and if we forget what the rest of the world is struggling with. So the last thing I wanted to ask was really, was was what you would point to, and you mentioned a couple there, Kavita, at the end, as being sources of hope, or, or, or what? where do you see what you might point to as being kind of best practice uh, around the world at the moment? Uh, Kavita. Well, IGEN leads a remarkable union, an association here, the National Domestic Workers Alliance. To me, it is a daily source of 
hope and possibility and strength in an environment where um, unions have been so eviscerated over the last years in this country, but also around the world and have been made to be the bad guys, as it were. I think particularly for women workers, having associations that are associations where women can come together to raise their voices um, has been a profound transformation. The work that we support of the International Domestic Workers Federation, um, we are also very, very proud of their work in being able to move forward conventions 189 and 190 um, at the ILO, which are conventions that have fought both for the right for women domestic workers to be considered workers and to be protected by labor, labor laws was a profound transformative fight. And then the second more recent struggle to recognize that sexual harassment and violence in the workplace is simply not acceptable. And to get more countries to ratify that, um, both those conventions, 189 and 190, I think that's a starting point for many of us to think about, well, what can you actually do? What needs to be done to move this forward? So that gives me a great amount of hope. The fact that women are organizing and mobilizing in India also, we see national associations of domestic workers coming together in the Caribbean, in so many parts of the world where these women have often been the most silenced and the most vulnerable to abuse, to see them raising their voices and to know that they have allies all across the globe is to just a really inspiring um, possibility. And I think also the other thing, and I think Aijan and I agree on this too, which is to see for the first time foundations stepping forward and being willing to engage with these unions, willing to put money on the table, willing to put money into a care fund, you know, coming together across, you know, often foundations each want to do their own thing. But thanks to iGen's work, we've been able to get people to come together and put money jointly into a care economy fund. For me, that gives me great hope. And while that is happening in the context of the U.S., I really hope that that will be something that will happen in other parts of the world as well. And I, I have hope that philanthropy will try and address its not so great origins, which is basically from an unequal and unfair capitalist system, and try and address that by putting money into these kinds of organizing strategies that we're seeing around the globe. Those are the things that give me hope. Beautiful. Thank you. Aijan? I was thinking about the fact that for most of the time that I've been doing this work, the challenge of caregiving has largely been seen and understood as a personal responsibility and burden um, to be borne largely by women behind closed doors in our homes. And if we can't figure it out, if we can't afford the care that we need, or we can't find it, or we struggle to provide it, it's seen as a personal failure, right? And I think what the pandemic really did is show the world that care is a collective responsibility. It's a shared need that we all have and that we can be doing our very, very best. And it's not enough. We need infrastructure. We need policies. We need a strong care workforce. And we need to come together to make that a reality. So what gives me hope is that there's been this kind of care awakening in the pandemic that 
I believe is the single greatest opening and opportunity to create the kind of care revolution that um, you took us to in your time machine. And I believe that we can make huge, huge advances and huge amounts of progress in inside of that awakening. Thank you both so much. This has been amazing. I knew it would be. So my, my, my deepest, deepest thanks to you both. So thank you so much for joining me here today. Thank you for having us. It's been, been an honor. Thank you very much for having us. So my thanks also to Ariana Conrad for her help with this episode, to everyone who subscribes and makes this podcast possible, and to Ben Adicott, whose production magic turns my meanderings into the magic you hear in these podcasts. Thank you all so much, and we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.